Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic. The closure of live performing arts centres and theatres in British Columbia, across Canada and around the world has overwhelmingly affected live performances, shutting down theatres and creating unemployment for countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs. Here in BC, although some theatres commenced performances during July through November, with COVID protocols in place and no community outbreaks as a result of attendance at these performances, theatres were closed again November 23rd and remain closed today. This second shutdown has not only affected artistic businesses and artistic economy, but has also had huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance. Dramatic Pause was launched so that the Fire Hall could keep in touch with artists during the pandemic through conversations. And as we move towards the first anniversary of closure with no certainty about what comes next, I've been talking to artistic directors about how they are working to get their companies through these times and what they have been up to. And I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Faye Nass, the artistic director of Frank Theatre, whose company was in production with ZZ Theatre here at the Fire Hall with Transcripts Part 1, The Women, on March 13th, when all theatres were forced to close. Faye has also worked with the Fire Hall as an associate artist several years ago, produced her then annual BC Buds Spring Arts Festival, and a number of other productions here actually, and we're going to talk about those. But most recently, her company produced an online production of Belonging. Welcome, Faye. Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely <laughs> to be here in this kind of a virtual um, way. Virtual world. Virtual <laughs> world, yes. <clears throat> so what have you been up to since uh, COVID, is, uh, COVID came down? I mean, first of all, we had to close the show transcripts and then you I think you guys streamed that one you worked to stream that was easy and then of course we were all hopeful that we'd be back in business again by the fall which we were briefly and now we're not so what have you been doing to keep yourself artistically uh excited but also just excited about life totally that's a wonderful question uh I don't know if I have uh, all the answers but uh <laughs> um so yes as you mentioned you know I think it was kind of like a really um you know, you were part of that moment when, you know, we worked on transcripts for eight months because we were working with community participants. So the rehearsal was broken down and there was this like final moment of opening and our opening fell right on March 13th when the news came about uh, the closure of theaters. So, um, you know, even for the opening night, we were not sure if anyone is going to show up. And it was amazing that the house was pretty full that night. Uh, but very uh, quickly, we decided that, you know, we have to just, um, you know, close the show even before the order. And I think 14. So we had two live performances. And uh, and luckily, we were able to um, uh, film it. I think uh, we had uh, one, well, we had one streaming of Transit Script. And then after that, we partnered with UBC and had one more uh, in October this year, uh, which was great because um, it's such an important script and I, I wish that it had a, a you know longer run. Um, I think after that like I personally went through a, a shock in my system like it just kind of like that that year was a specifically really busy for me. Um, I was in like you know three productions like with uh, Shimami Wata that was a push and 
straight white men at the gateway and right after was transcript so it was like you know in three months there were three uh, full productions and then to nothing there was like definitely not only existential crisis like but it almost like felt like uh you know I just kind of like the unknown and the uncertainty I guess I'm a Capricorn like I, I deal very well if like someone is like in a some you know like there's a disaster I deal very well with it but not being able to see it and not knowing exactly what's happening uh that put a huge toll on my system um so yeah I had like you know I felt like very exhausted I had like anxiety uh right after was Persian New Year and after you know all my life 37 years it was the first year I didn't celebrate it with my parents uh even though they were still like you know you can see your you know family and stuff it just felt I felt too scared you know with the unknown so that was like where I was at I think in March April um and then you know a lot of dreams and things that they have worked on so hard uh was kind of like you know flourishing like you know I was with the uh leadership program at MTS at the Banff Center for the Cultural Leadership and there was so much inspiration so much excitement and all of those things got canceled or went on uh, pause. So it was just like one of those years that, you know, the fireworks is happening and you're like, 2020 is going to be a great year. And then it was just like, um, it was opposite. Um, but I feel like one of the things that was good for me, and I think a lot of people have mentioned this already, and it's maybe redundant, but it just was like, one of the things that has always been important to me has been process. And sometimes within the capitalist model, uh, it's really hard to work within the kind of systems that I naturally um, grad gravitated towards and has been part of my practice for the past 15 years. So it just kind of felt like for the first time, the world was on the same side as me, you know, like people were talking more and more about process, they were talking about well being, and all these things that have been so embedded in my practice, and I have spent so much energy, like defending them, it just kind of felt much more uh, natural. And people felt like, you know, it felt like the world is supporting those notions. And specifically uh, so in terms of arts groups or arts artists fellow artists or yes overall? yes yeah, I would say like arts group, like, you know, funders, fellow artists, like, you know, it just kind of felt like, okay, you know, this is the time to think about things. This is the time to see if we can develop things. Don't worry about it. Don't rush it. You know, for, don't worry about that report if the show has not happened. You know, like there was like so much support. Uh, and so that gave us the opportunity, like at least with the Frank, like, you know, um, transcript, I think was a different story because it was already on and it just felt like unfair to not, um, you know, uh, video it and show it online. But with everything else, like all of our programs were like, let's not rush into it. Let's not just like, you know, do a play and then film it. You know, that was not something that I was like right away interested in. Uh, so I guess I was like a little bit like one of those people who was right in the middle. Like I was not thinking like in a month, everything will be okay. We will do live theater again. But I was also not part of the group that are like, we're super excited about like, you know, the, 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 the decline of theater empire like you know we are going to destroy all the theaters and everything will be digital and i was never excited about that possibility either um so it was just like time to ponder and i feel like there was a beauty in that kind of like having time to think um, I, I think that's absolutely true i think this pause is, is this dramatic pause has actually had uh, a huge will have a huge effect effect on how we move forward once we are allowed to move forward um, I'm curious, Faye, when did you decide or how did you know you were going to be an artist? 
so I, uh, you know, I was born in Iran, and I grew up in a very artistic family, especially from my mom's side. My grandfather was a translator, French to Farsi, uh, and a writer and an activist. And my aunt uh, was a theater actor director. So. Um, when I was about four or five years old, and this is during the war between Iran and Iraq, and I have talked about this in one of my pieces, but uh, you know, the idea of like the shortage of electricity was often because of bombing planes and stuff. And, uh, and so like, you know, I had this like notion with like, you know, uh, the shortage of electricity and my dad would always make like, you know, shadow plays on the wall so we don't get scared. Um, and then when I was five, I went, uh, my aunt took me to international um, children theater festival. And, uh, and I remember the first time that I kind of saw that the light turning off and not for the same reasons that I was aware of, you know, for this kind of active, uh, tiltulating and exciting uh, possibility. Like I could feel that anticipation in the room. And then when the light appeared, it was like magic. Um, so that was like pretty much like, you know, when I knew I loved theater, but also like my aunt took me to all rehearsals with her and she would do like, you know, puppet theater and like, as well as like, you know, uh, acting and stuff. And then by the time I was 16, 15, well, right before we came here, I was kind of like in the room as her assistant, you know, not with any official title uh, when she was directing. So it was kind of like one of those things that I feel like I was lucky uh, knowing that that's something I want to do uh, from early age. I think like before that, like in age of four, I wanted to be a genetic engineer because I think I read, heard about that somewhere and I didn't understand what it means. So I thought I would come up with pills that would make sure, like in pills that would uh, allow my grandparents to live forever. Uh, so that was my initial thought. So like, you know, um, but that's then, very interesting given where we are right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My are trying to come up with how to solve this, uh, you know, come up with vaccines that work, that are easy to get, but, or totally. actually ones that can uh, change uh, our, our system so that we aren't um, affected by this. So uh, totally. I have to say, though, that uh, if you'd done that, I would have missed the pleasure of meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> and, but trust me, my grandma keeps calling me and keeps saying that, like, remember you were four, you said that, you know, COVID is really bad in Tehran. When are you going to come up with that vaccine? And I'm like, please don't guilt me. I'm making mistakes. <laughs> did you know, did you always know that you were going to be a director? Did, did that ever occur to you that you couldn't be a director? Um, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I was mostly interested when I was younger in writing, like in Iran, like before I moved to uh, Canada, like, you know, I was like in like essay competitions and stuff when I was a teenager. So like, I think like writing and playwriting was like something that I was initially interested in. Um, and uh, directing came a little bit later in life, I would say, like, I always loved being a film director because I'm, a, you know, as you know, I'm a, a film fanatic. Right. Uh, but when it comes to theater, I think it was mostly uh, my undergrad and kind of like, you know, we had to do acting and stuff. And I faced so many um, social barriers as a performer. And there was a lot with the system that I didn't disagree with. And it just kind of felt like, you know, I, in order for me to have any ability to change things the way I want, um, like I need to hold a little bit more power. And so that's where the interest towards directing came. So then I could actually, um, you know, change some of the systematic barriers, like, you know, racial barriers and be able to uh, cast people that I felt like they deserve to be on stage and representation and all that jazz 20 years ago. So I think that's where it kind of initiated. And then 
you know, one of those things I felt like I was I was good at it. And I, I never felt I was a good at performer. So then it became one of those things, you know. Um, did yeah. you see, uh, did you see at that time that the work that you would be involved in? I mean, there's a lot of theater. I personally believe that theater is, uh, whatever you do in theater is a political statement. Um, uh, but uh, did you see at that point that you were always going to use the experience or the tools that you have towards creating work that actually did have a more political perspective? I believe so. I think like, you know, part of it is like, uh, yes, I have always been that way. And I think there is something like, I mean, I agree with you that I think theater is. And I also think that like, you know, just like the lived experience of being Iranian Canadian. And I think like in general, I would say Iranians, like, you know, even people that they don't think they are political in Iran are political. Like, it's just like politics is so ingrained in our lives. Um, like in our conversations, even when we're children, that like, you know, when you're an artist, it's almost like impossible to separate it, you know, like uh, what is personal is political, what is political is personal almost. Um, and then when I moved here, it just kind of like became even more obvious, you know, especially uh, 20 years ago, like the things that I were passionate about, it just always felt like, you know, it had like a political uh, component to it. Now, yeah. I watched uh, I, the screening of uh, Belonging last night. Uh, and I'm curious, did you originally conceive, I'm assuming from the direction you took, and I thought it was very well directed. Uh, and I like the conception of it, but what it was seen to be a stage work, was it not? So you were going to, when were you going to stage it? Actually, when was the plan to put it up live for for audiences? Yeah, so um <clears throat> So it was supposed to be like, I mean, it, it you know, uh, the concept of like diaspora, which is our uh, was the community um, based uh, social justice community based project that the Frank did in 2018. Um, I always had this interest with that project for it to go through four phases. And the first phase was social justice, uh, so, uh, which was basically a conversation about being queer and uh, living in exile. The second part was like a device with community participant that had a training component for them to be able to get those stories out with me. And the third one was like, if they wish to do like, you know, to pre present it, they could actually kind of do it in a verbatim style theater mm -hmm. and I would arrange this uh, the script. And then the fourth phase for me was always about how these stories can exist outside of a community feeling and to, uh, you know, be like, like how can we imagine them to flourish in a professional way as like a full production uh, with professional cast and professional crew. Uh, and I always wanted that, that to also still be in relation to first generation immigrants or people who identify as queer, but within professional theater uh, companies and like the, the ecology. And so um, that plan was like uh, for July, 2020, uh, we had the annex and, um, and I had an entirely different plan for that script actually it was like a very different uh, I wanted to use the stories but like the format of it was much more narrative based actually the script that I was thinking about working on um, like almost much more storytelling you know you would meet these characters uh, in like a bar or in a setting like you know with like in their conversation with their lovers but it didn't have the same kind of um, documentary I would say format or uh, verbatim and then uh, when uh, the pandemic happened, I kind of felt like, okay, maybe this can be possible, but like to reimagine it through the lens of cinema, 
theater and new media. And that way, like, you know, we're actually embedding it in how we are working on the script rather than like doing it as a theatrical piece mm -hmm. and then filming it. So I did reach out to Sammy Chen, who I wanted to work with originally uh, for the live performance as well. And uh, Megna Halder, who was one of our community participants in the original phase. Uh, but she's a documentary filmmaker. Um, if they want to join me to kind of rewrite, like, you know, rearrange and rewrite the script through uh, that lens. So I would say what you saw as belonging was very much created for the format that you, you witnessed it. Right. Um, and, uh, and the idea of it was uh, really kind of looking at the idea of fluidity of queerness and diaspora and finding a new form that like, you know, I, I was actually talking to Nadia Ross and she was saying, I was watching it. I'm like, it is theater, but it's not theater. It is film, but it's not film. It is a spoken word, but it's not, you know? And I think that was like something that we really were uh, like, that was a very deep desire because that kind of, you know, is how I feel like existing in between two worlds, you know, like I'm not fully Iranian, I'm not fully Canadian, I'm, you know, but I am all of those things, you know, and, uh, and I think that was like the, the aesthetic was supposed to kind of um, engage with that content, I guess. Well, it was interesting because as I was watching, I, I was thinking about um, all, all the all the content and all the things that were discussed within it, obviously, but I was also thinking about how really the need or the COVID need to pivot your concept actually was uh, contributing to the creation of, I think, and this is something that people are talking about a bit more, about actually something that's a new art form that mm -hmm. actually, uh, as Nadia, when you were talking, it's not theater, it's not film, it's this strange blend that hasn't, um, ha hasn't found its... Uh, full uh, capacity yet, Not, and I'm not commenting on your script, I'm co commenting on the overall art form. Uh, and I don't think people understand that outside of what we're doing within the theater world, that it truly isn't theater that we're doing. <laughs> we're doing, we've had to pivot our whole visions, which were about live performance over to this new form that is, uh, is exciting, but it's not live performance. And when I, uh, deal with some of the officials who are deciding whether or not we can be open or not, I kind of have to say, well, you're actually, you're, it's not theater we're doing. We can't do theater on online. <laughs> that doesn't, that's not what we're doing. Um, and you had some great collaborators working on that, that particular piece. Did you, had you started that piece before you took over Frank? Cause you, how long have you been with Frank theater? And do you want to talk a bit about Frank theater? Um, yes, I have been uh, with the Frank since, uh, well, officially January 2018, um, but I was associate artist and uh, worked on the intersecting QTQ uh, in 2017. Um, and I did the Pink Line project with them in 2016. Uh, so Pink Line was very much kind of like a similar concept, I would say, as Diaspora in terms of like bringing community members and like you know, getting the stories, like that kind of format that I enjoy working with. Uh, but because I was just an associate artist, it ended up being just a verbatim style. It did not, you know, continue with its life um, so uh, this idea to be honest with you belonging and diaspora has been like you know kind of like my passion 
like for the past 10 years, you know, like being able to, you know, tell stories that are not kind of like, you know, lecture like and like, you know, they just kind of show human condition, show nuances and complexities of being human, uh, but they are told and created by Im first generation immigrants and uh, people of color. So that has always been something like, you know, imagine if that happens, but it, the work, it's not really necessarily about that or kind of wanting to like, you know, give a lecture, but it's about sharing the stories. And so, um, but then uh, it has started with the Frank, like one of the things that I really wanted to do with Frank, because we, um, in the past, we had, you know, main stages and telling at Bent, which was part of the, you know, previous programming. And then we, uh, the Frank had like um, something uh, called Clean Sheets, which was like a new development of a script. And, um, and it just kind of felt like, you know, again, like that is such a Eurocentric model, like, you know, working with like, you know, well-made script and we already do main stages. And so I kind of felt like, you know, I would like to switch that program with the community-based device processes to actually include uh, more folks that they have found theater completely inaccessible. Um, and so that became like one of the, you know, uh, focal kind of like annual programming uh, concept. And Diaspora was the first one in 2018. And uh, this year we are focusing on a new topic, uh, which is called Mother Tongues and uh, focuses on the idea of language when it comes to uh, the barriers that language have, especially when you're queer, because queerness itself is so rooted in English and academic identification. Uh, so, um, so basically that project is going to invite people who speak English as their additional language too. And do you, do you wanna just share what Frank's mandate is for those who may not know Frank's, the Frank's uh, work? Yes, uh, Frank's mandate is to create space for queer stories and uh, and sex positive um, environments uh, where uh, queer identities and queer stories can exist and uh, be represented. Uh, it started in 1996 as a screaming weenie as one of the first uh, queer mandated uh, companies in the West Coast. Uh, I really love the story that Elena told me that uh, at that time, it was important for the company to be called Screaming Weenie because queer people had to really scream out loud in order to um, exist, to be visibilized. And, and, uh, and then eventually in 2008, uh, they decided to change it to Frank as like, you know, it was the society was somewhat ready to have honest conversations about queerness. So I feel like, you know, while the mandate has stayed the same, uh, what Frank is, is always responding to the immediateness and the urgency uh, uh, of what is needed in the society and responding to it within the umbrella of queerness. And so it felt like, you know, when I uh, took the leadership, uh, one of the things that I always felt kind of existed on the margins of queerness were the stories of people that... Uh, you know, like newcomers, uh, queer immigrants and refugees. And so like, you know, while the name is still Frank and it's still really about having those Frank conversations uh, was a stepping away, uh, further away from like, you know, Eurocentric model of a storytelling and to include more queer stories outside of that notion. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the mandate. And um, and it's, it's, it's exciting, you know, I feel like uh, there is a lot within that mandate that needs to be done and can be done. There, there certainly is. <laughs> I mean, storytelling happens around the world in all cultures and there are different ways of telling stories uh, within those cultures. Um, so I thought, uh, I thought your integration of the, the stories that you had in, 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 the, in Belonging uh, was really fascinating to me. I also 
uh, thought the pol politics of, of how one lives when one is queer in another country that is uh, very homophobic or uh, uh, totally biased against uh, uh, gender neutrality or gender um, gender sexual orientation. Um, I thought that was really important for this story in the stories um, because a lot of the 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 research you did must have brought that to the fore in terms of these are there's a lot of reason why people come to Canada. One of them is actually to get away from the unfair treatment because they're they are not straight. So, okay, do you want to talk a bit more about the process of, I mean, you talked about the stages of belonging, um, but what happened when you were in the room with the, the artists that were in the show? Are some of those stories theirs or are they stories that are come, came, came from the research that you did in the earlier, in the earlier two, three processes? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, you know, um, I would say, like, regardless of the kind of uh, work that I do, either it's like, you know, professionals, like if it's a full, you know, even if it's like, you know, uh, Tennessee Williams or if it's device, uh, my process is quite, you know, open and uh, collaborative. Uh, it's a mindset that I really love to bring into the room. Uh, with this project specifically, um, when we cast, uh, not like we like the idea was like the stories are going to be the ones that were told in the second phase by the community participants. Uh, and the actors were only going to tell those stories. Um, we wanted them to be first generation immigrants, uh, but that was basically it. Um, but as soon as we got into the room, it just kind of felt like there's something unfair about that, you know, because a lot of them had, you know, experiences, lived experiences, and they could really connect with the material. Uh, but uh, uh, eventually, so like yeah, the belonging itself, like, you know, it, it includes like four of the original participants, in, including Magna with, with her five, as well as myself and Sammy Chen, we brought some of our stories into the script. And um, and then uh, with the participant, uh, they could like, you know, they had the freedom of like, you know, changing a few things or something didn't feel right to them. We would cut them uh, like, you know, so it was like a very much like a live script throughout the process. And then uh, something about language came up and it just felt like that is something so important to each of the participants. And so a lot of like the text that was either like, you know, research and brought into it or uh, some of the text that was uh, contributed from the original participants. So maybe the text was written in English uh, and our participant uh, happened to speak Spanish as a first language. So they translated it and made it theirs. Uh, so that was, I would say, like the contribution of the cast in like, you know, being like, I feel like I want to say this part and, and some of it like being even improvised, you know, like I want to add this. This is how I would say it in Arabic. Uh, so it was a still quite, uh, yeah, like it was just like everything was like almost like an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation, you know. <laughs> Well, they owned. They had to own it. They needed yes, to own yes. it and and yes. uh, connect to it. So I that, I think that's one of the interesting things about verbatim theater, uh, unless you're using the people who actually are speaking the words. Is it really verbatim? <laughs> you know. Uh, so if it if any anyway, we could go off on a long tangent about verbatim theater. Sometimes it really is very effective, and sometimes it it really is just a sharing of an experience. I think. Um, the choreography, I thought the choreography was very fascinating and I wondered what drove the choices there. 
Uh, you know, I, I think Arash is amazing, and uh, and it was really great to have him in the room uh, between Farsi and English. We would just like kind of basically be like, okay, this is. I was, I would be like, this is the feeling of like da 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 da, half in Farsi, half in English, and he's like, I got it, I got it. So you wanted like this, like that, and then like it was just like so active, you know, and like again, like. You know, you bring someone into the room that, yeah, maybe does not know all the, you know, intersections of like, you know, queerness. But as a first generation immigrant, there was so much that he carried in his body. And like, you know, it would just take like just a bit of a communication. It was so playful. And then he would just like have a complete freedom uh, of coming up with the ideas that. You know, and the this is Arash yeah. Kapoor. And he, yes. he uh, had did you know him very well before you started this process? Did you ever work with him before? We've never worked together, uh, but we have had, uh, you know, uh, respect and uh, French. I mean, we have worked together. Arash was actually a uh, performer, a performer in a th in the thesis project of Aphotic Dream that I did at SFU, uh, and so uh, we worked together in that capacity. That's eleven years ago, um, and uh, yeah, so it was fantastic. And also, Taima's. Um, Saba, who was the composer, was in the room from day one. Like, so he was basically in the room the whole time for two months. And uh, and he also um, would kind of like, you know, provide music and uh, like, and then Arsh was like, okay, okay, I'll go with this music and choreograph it. And it doesn't matter if it changes, right? So it was like really, uh, it was very organic and very beautiful. And you, uh, had with... two, you had two months to create the work. Is that usually... <laughs> something that you have uh, uh, the possibility of doing? I mean, or is that something that you structure into your work and that's part of your process within Frank now is that if you're going to do a project, you allow the time? The initial parts, like when we started conversation with time was especially, it started like a few weeks before. The rehearsal was three weeks and then uh, another week of shooting. Okay. Um, so four weeks in total. Um, but I would... Uh, like I think I am going to uh, try, depending on like you know cost and everything, because there's always that uh, to you know bring in like you know three weeks in advance, being in the room just with the actors, and I think two extra weeks would have been nicer. And did you have a? I mean, obviously you had a draft of a script. Yeah. You had the, the script that you wanted to work with, which got changed, but you didn't do a dramaturgy process or anything like that. Um, so the script that we worked on, it was like from April uh, between me, Sammy and Meghna and Meghna took the lead on uh, bringing different like, you know, all of the Rumi and uh, Rumi's poetry and a lot of like the research of different writers I have and all of that that was embedded into the script uh, were all uh, done by Meghna. And so she basically like, you know, um, like wove those into the stories that we already had. And then I kind of like, um, so yeah, I did the dramaturgy on the whole thing from April all the way through the rehearsals in terms of like, you know, cutting things, you know, and uh, like the script in some ways is similar to what we had for Diaspora and in some other ways, not at all. And also like, um, with, uh, sorry, with uh, diaspora, one person would tell, like, because it was verbatim, their own story, their own journey, whereas in belonging, sometimes a character is talking about the story of the, you know, someone else. And it's like, you know, basically, they're just a like composite characters. Can you talk a bit uh, about how Sammy, very similar, very amazing, talented yes. guy, <laughs> um, how he, how his, his work integrated how, how did you work with the video and his choice? He's incredibly creative that way. 
is. Sammy is incredible. He's, uh, he's a beautiful human. He's a fantastic artist. And I think our processes and the way we work is so similar. Um, so we, again, Sammy was involved from April. I sent him the original script. And then every week, two, two times a week, we would meet me, Sammy and Megna to talk about how we can rethink about those material. So Sammy was very much involved. And then around July, uh, he started, like when I was doing the dramaturgy on the script and Megna was like bringing uh, the source material, Sammy was literally like going through the script with us. I mean, like, okay, this is where I think there is a good potential for uh, video and projection this is like what do you want from this fail like you know do you want to have this kind of feeling this feeling like you know and then he would just we basically have it written in the script of what Sammy was going to do some of those things changed because of the confines of space and you know limitations but the vision was very much embedded in the script that we had the first day of rehearsal so we, we exactly knew this is where Sammy is going to do something with butterfly you know or like um, and then like in post he also was inspired so he did even more than uh, what I could imagine. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. His, <laughs> well, it was interesting great. to me because I also, and I, 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 I've only watched it once, but it, it seemed to me that it was almost structured in, in, in acts. Uh, or, uh, and, and, and I wondered if that was a deliberate choice or whether you saw them as scenes or how, how you, uh, which I kind of went, well, I know this is not, Faye would not want to be doing too traditional a structure, but there is almost a structure to it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, there is a structure to it. And was that a was that a choice? And were you thinking of it that way, or did the video push it that way? Or um, I think uh, kind of both. Like it felt like you know, uh, you know, I didn't even have like names in the script originally, to be honest. And then like for example, video, like you know, Magna was like in film, we need to have names because it would be very hard for the director or photographer. Uh, to not have a name to talk to, you know, so there were definitely technical elements that added to the script. Um, so when I worked with the divide, like with the community members, it just felt like having acts or themes or titles helped to bring the stories out of them. So I wanted to kind of like honor that. And in terms of the structure in this piece was very much about journey. Like, I mean, each of us saw it different because there are three collaborators. I saw it as journey because to me, it was about childhood and then kind of recognizing sexuality, which we called it like, you know, summer of love. And then, um, and then to this need of leaving and then borders and then exile and then kind of like recognizing you are in this place and you're some of all of those experiences. Uh, so it was kind of chaptered in that kind of like almost like coming of age, which yes. is a Eurocentric. Uh, and then for Megna, it was more around colors as a documentary filmmaker. So, you know, she was seeing it as like, you know, summer, spring, winter and autumn within those emotions of those uh, titles. So, um, so I guess like, yes. And it kind of felt like it helps the actors because they were not their stories. It helps like, you know, to be like, okay, like, you know, get into a space where you had your first love, your first kiss, uh, because it was difficult to say like, this is your journey because like, you know, some of that was from Jonathan, the first participant, others was from Fergie, like, you know, so, so there was like no way to direct them uh, to get a, you know, authentic uh, connection with the, with the story uh, that was like millions of characters. So it was easier to just kind of like connect to a moment in time. And would you, if, if, uh, in the future, if you uh, were to have the opportunity, would you ever take it to the stage to a live performance? Yes, 
I like to be honest with you at the moment I am in in in, in kind of like a two like I think it's maybe new like I am excited by the possibility of it being a new form and finding other places that maybe it can exist outside of theater um and I think there would be things that I would change if it was uh live theater so I would say it would go through another dramaturgical phase but yes like I think uh it's definitely possible. Um, but yeah, like I was talking to a friend and I was like, I also am excited with the idea of it to be, you know, in a museum, for example, uh, where, you know, the narrative, you can walk in any time and the narrative has a circular sense. You it know, loops, and yeah. Loops and um, so, yeah, but possible. Uh, well, we're going to move on to some other topics, yes. but uh, are you planning to screen it again? I mean, uh, it was very successful from what I understand when you first did it. And I know after people hear the podcast, they may be interested in seeing it if they didn't see it the first time around. Is there a plan to do that down the road or they should send a note to Frank and ask you when you're doing that? <laughs> um, they, yes, I would say definitely check the Frank website. Like, you know, uh, we may uh, uh, submit it to a few festivals. And uh, at the moment, we're kind of thinking about it as like our first digital touring possibility um so if there are in, like you know if anyone is interested would be happy to have that conversation and uh if you know if things change and that life is not possible for the piece we are considering to do another streaming or screening of it in the next year now i'm going to move into well i want to ask you about pickleball because <laughs> I know you're an expert at pickleball, so we'll yes. take that's a lighter topic. <laughs> uh, but I also want to get back to talking a bit about what what a role of an artistic director is. So, which would you like to talk about first, pickleball or? <laughs> oh my God, it's so hard. I I love pickle, I love pickleball more than a role of artistic director. So let's just start with the role of an artistic director. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of discussion during this time of the the pandemic when people have lots of time to think about things about the traditional model of artistic director as the leader or the artistic visionary. Um, and I'm wondering if what your thoughts are on that. I mean, should we be remaking the model? It's a model that came from probably Great Britain and from Europe. Uh, it's very Eurocentric, but I also think it's actually quite international in concept. It's, it's uh, the visionary leads the work. And do you think we've got to a place now where we can change that? And if so, how would it change? Um, yeah, that's a good question. The first answer that I have is that maybe I would not know. I don't know the history of uh, how artistic director position began. As someone who has lived in Iran and Canada, I definitely know that the idea of a visionary or the leader is very much embedded in at least the countries that I know um, for you know 4,000 years. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily true, at least in my case, like, I don't think that like, you know, in within Western countries, like people have a leader and then within like non-Western countries, everyone is working uh, together um, in a, like a equal level. Uh, but I do think that there is a, something that I'm interested in is like the collaborative mindset. Um, and I personally get really excited intellectually 
in terms of utopia with the idea of being able to work together and break those hierarchical uh, status. Like, you know, I have fought against them so much. In my fight, I'm not sure what's the solution because I have also, as a divisor, uh, faced a lot of challenges when there is not a, like, you know, one person who is a visionary or is leading, uh, you know, the chaos that can, can come from it. Uh, there are organizations and uh, groups that there is so much trust between them that they have been able to really create a collaborative, equal collaborative uh, uh, progress, uh, which is something that I aspire to do. Uh, but I feel like the challenge is, you know, I, I function from a very value-based leadership mentality. And I think like at least within Frank, I mean, it's two of us, so it's very easy to have this conversation. And I don't want to be one of those people to say like, if we can do it, you know, an organization with 500 staff can also do it. Uh, and not in that sense, but I think in terms of like mindset, like um, I would say like me and NA work really closely together. You know, like there are, for me, those notions of like, you know, power or like, you know, visionary, like they make me uncomfortable. I don't love them. And I really love working and like, you know, feeding off each other and work together and see, you know, like my strengths are different from her. Uh, hers, like, you know, we have like 10 years of uh, like, you know, I'm 10 years older, but I'm constantly learning. And there's like such a exchange uh, in the way we run the company. And I really do feel like we run the company together. Um, but I feel like the beauty of that is because uh, she's someone that's uh, has very similar value system as I do. So I don't know what would happen, you know, if we are working within an organization that we hire 10 other people that have very different values. Like, how do we move forward if there is not a person uh, who is the, you know, the leader or the visionary? Um, and that is actually one of the topics that I'm very, very interested in. Uh, and it's more of a question to me as well, investigation or a thesis uh, than having an answer for. And that's something that I have been uh, very passionate about as part of my artistic leadership uh, with National Theatre School of what are the advantages, like, you know, and what is like, what, how can we make that utopia possible uh, in a way that it causes, it creates beauty and does not cause injury. Um, so, um, and the other way around, is it possible to have a hierarchical structure that is working harmoniously and it creates beauty and does not cause injury? I don't. I, I mean, I think those are big. They're obviously very big questions. I mean, uh, I, when I said I thought I think around the world, probably there have been leaders or visionaries who've realized a, a dream, whether they're called artistic directors or not. The other complication, of course, we have in Canada is that we're all not for profit societies. And technically, the board are the people that are, are uh, uh, responsible for ensuring the mandate and mission of organizations are fulfilled. So there's an extra complication there. Not that uh, there aren't great boards who are doing great work to support theater companies, but there's also problems when boards start to get too concerned about how much revenue is being raised and who is actually being served by the work. Um, I know certainly when I first started in theater, and this dates me, there are a number of collectives working in North America. I mean, it was a very 60s thing and I didn't start working in the 60s. I just want to tell you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but one of the oldest uh, uh, collectives uh, was Tamanu Theater that survived for, I don't know, 30 years, I believe, um, and was led by uh, artists who became very, um, 
prominent in the theater scene in Vancouver and in Canada. I mean, for artistic uh, Larry Lillo, who was a leader uh, and seen as a, a very much a visionary was in that company. And so the company actually, when it when he did move away from that company, the company actually struggled for years to figure out what it was doing because it was no longer the collective of the original people that had created it. And so that's also a, 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 a challenge, I think, if you're wanting to work collectively. And how, how I think the model that we have now can either really fail drastically because of communication or it can succeed if there's an openness to bringing people in. So I'm really interested in how this discussion goes. Um, uh, I've also seen some companies that have been very successful with three leaders in positions and I've seen others that have failed so it's, I think it depends on personalities, total intention, <laughs> I 100%. think it's part of it as well, but I'm glad the discussion is happening. Um, I think, uh, like I said before, and I think you've said this as well, when we come out of COVID, I think things will be a little bit different, I hope. Um, and, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, certainly in my case, I'm thinking more about, more and more about how much time we can take to create work. Can we expand the amount of time which you talked about? Because it's very easy to get pushed into that model because of money, primarily, uh, of uh, rehearsing for two and a half weeks and putting the show up or not having the time. This is with a scripted work, but um, not having the time to actually delve into the whole piece uh, and really, really um, get to the guts of it, if you will. Um, so now how about pickleball? You want to talk about pickleball? What is pickleball? You know, when you first told me about pickleball, I went, I can't imagine what that is. It just made me laugh. I know. And it's real. You see, like who knew <laughs> that I'm going to tell you about pickleball, you know, like, um, yeah. So like, I haven't played pickleball, Donna, but it was like, definitely. You haven't been uh, playing pickleball. Oh, of course you can't play pickleball. No, right? I can't. No. I mean, you know what, uh, to be honest with you, like after, like, you know, when we talked like a few years ago, when uh, I think it was when like I moved back from Spain to Vancouver in 2013, we started um, competitive, you know, I come back, I come from like competitive soccer background and my partner from tennis, but you know, like the women in that course, like, you know, even though they were all like about 90, 95, they were so good. And we kept going. We continued for one year. We stopped drinking, going to parties with friends because, you know, we knew every Saturday we have our pickleball and, uh, and we were never able to beat them. And so eventually it became such a failure that like, you know, I like even when friends talk about like, let's go play pickleball. I'm like, no, like it's like the only sport that I have tried and I have not won once again. Oh, so you've given up on it. <laughs> totally. Uh, yep. 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 <laughs> yeah, they're really, really good and fast. Like, you know, the rec center in West Vancouver where we uh, used to play, uh, you know, I just don't understand. It's just they're too good. <laughs> uh, so I have given up on pickleball, but. Well, that may be the only thing they're competing in. So that may be their major focus. That's true. <laughs> you never know. That's I mean, I have friends since you introduced me to pickleball. <laughs> I do know people uh, that are my age <laughs> that are playing pickleball and they're complaining about the fact that they can't play pickleball. And I keep going. I think I don't know that I'll ever play pickleball. It's got such a ridiculous name to it. But anyway, I know you should try it. It is like, you know, there's social distancing in it. Like, you know, you're quite far away from each other. Uh, I think if anything, I think pickleball will come back before theater. 
So oh God, I hope not. not. <laughs> well, maybe it should. Actually, maybe it should. So, so do you think live theater will survive? Do you think people will come away from their screens once this is we're allowed to do so? I think so, Donna. You know, like I said this in the beginning of pandemic in another uh, conference when like uh, the conversation was about like, are we be able to gather again? And I think, you know, again, as someone who uh, comes from a different place, um, I come from a place that like, you know, it's been oppressed for 35 years uh, of, you know, people being not being able to drink or dance publicly. And, and uh, you know, when I look at my mom's generation, uh, like 35 years of oppression did not stop them to drink and dance and party in that country. Uh, so I, and they did not forget. Um, so I really don't think that, you know, two years of a pandemic will make us to forget touch and the values of being together. And uh, I think life theater has survived worse. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like, it's, it's just incredible to even see that there is theater still existing in 2021, you know? So I feel like, uh, yeah, like, you know, I feel like theater is kind of like a uh, theater is going to stay alive, in my opinion. Um, well, I, those, I, I hope, you know, I hope so. I mean, I think yeah. if, if, if not, we're going to become um, a society that can't connect with each other. Because I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying connecting you with you online. But uh, there's a different, uh, there's that energy that happens when you're actually in a room with people. And that's it that can either be uh, really uh, rewarding or exciting or you know, fills your heart. Uh, and I think that doesn't happen on screen. It, there's no way it happens on screen. So that connectivity, that's what I'm hearing from people. I just want to connect with somebody. I just want to really look at them as opposed to see their image. Uh, but I am concerned because I have two grandchildren and now they're, they're, not, they're in places that I can't visit them. So I'm connecting with them on screen. And it's, it's, it's a connection, but thankfully we've had a connection before this happened uh, or otherwise they would know me in a very different way than they know me now. So it, it is a bit of a concern um, in yeah. terms of how younger people are going to adapt to this, but. I, I can, I mean, you know what, I, I understand that, but I kind of feel like, you know, maybe in some ways, like, you know, people will be even more grateful or appreciative, you know, like, you know, maybe like the younger people, like, you know, they, that are so deprived from touch, uh, you know, when things are better and they get They'll a chance, run out you know, and, yeah. Hug, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there yeah. Will be more. We'll be having I guess, big I, hug fests. Everybody will be having hug fests because that's what I hear most. I just want a hug. Somebody just wants a hug. Um, so I, what do you miss the most? from uh, the live, not being able to do live performance? Um, you know, I, uh, it's like kind of like two things. Like uh, first is like, you know, be careful what you wish for because I uh, said, uh, I said this like a few months ago that I missed that like uh, tension and anticipation of the tech days that are exhausting. And then like, you know, people are coming opening night and you're not sure if things like, especially as a director, you have to sit back and there's so much beauty in that. I love that kind of like letting go of control. And it's like, you know, uh, it's both painful and really exciting to me. And I said that you don't have that same joy in digital, but when we did belonging, it was such a big project that actually Sammy and I just finished everything 10 minutes before the opening night <laughs> and we submitted it. So I'm like, okay, I have to be careful with like, you know, what I ask for. Um, but I think it's just like, yeah, like that sensation of like being in the same room, as I said, you know, my first memory of like that magic, you know, the light appearing and like, there's something so magical 
about that moment for me. I have created work based on it. It has been with me for, you know, 33 years from the first time I was in the theater. And I miss that magic. And it's not the same way if I, you know, turn off the light and turn on, turn it on, like when I'm watching Netflix. So um, I miss that. And, uh, and I miss, yeah, I miss having a glass of wine. I miss the opening nights. You know, I, I love events. I... <laughs> I, uh, it's been hard for me, you know, as someone who likes to throw big birthday parties and like, you know, wine and cheese gatherings and do does theater. Like, uh, it's been, it's been definitely challenging. Uh, how do you think our actors are doing and uh, the artists out there? How do you think the theater, like the designers and have you, are you staying in touch with many of them? Yes. I mean, uh, luckily, a lot of the actor friends that I have, they say that there are more stuff like in terms of, you know, financial stuff, like in terms of uh, advertisement and filming uh, that is happening within the cinematic, the cinema world in Vancouver. So I feel like they are still auditioning and uh, at least the people I know, uh, there are less jobs, but, you know, when they do get something, it pays more than theater. I don't think that they're saying goodbye to theater, but I think meanwhile, it's been good that Vancouver, uh, the cases are lower than California and there's still a lot of movies being shot here. Well, and thankfully uh, for those, for the act, for the acting community, I think that's, that the, the movies are the only thing that's there for them uh, or, or pivoting and taking on another job or a different career. And that's difficult to do if you're a senior artist, that's not what you, what you train to be. You're professional and you wanna work professionally. So thankfully film is here although most of it's American film, I have to yeah. say, or American yeah. television shows. Uh, but thankfully it is here. And I know that a lot of our technicians have kind of pivoted to get into film as well. So I'm a little concerned. I hope they'll want to come back to our lower paying design jobs when film is, it, when we are able to open. Um, so I usually ask this question. Uh, well, I ask two questions at the end. Uh, what, what is your version of a dramatic pause? What would you say a dramatic pause is? For me, I think the dramatic pause has been like really focusing on myself, uh, my partner, my family, and the people that are very important to me. And usually I'm so distracted by noise and things and shows and running around uh, that I, you know, I'm pretty good at like giving them love, but I feel like the dramatic pause has been like really staying connected with those people that ground me that are very important to me, going for walks. I've never, you know, I usually like go for walks because I'm like, you know, missing my bus and I'm like running for it. Uh, <laughs> so it has always been kind of like really quick. Um, but like right now it's like taking time and all of that. And, uh, and to just kind of have a chance to not feel that you're a failure if in every single moment you're not productive. Um, you know, and I just like really have been trying to embrace that notion of like, okay, I'm just feeling good, you know, like I'm taking a moment. Um, yeah, so that, that sounds that. pretty good. And if you had all the money in the world, if you got this huge grant, what would you do with it? Or not uh, even a huge grant, you might win the lottery. Okay, um, I guess like I would do that song, you know, I would move to the south of France and buy my parents' house. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know what I think like if I had that opportunity I would really give myself a year uh, of working on a memoir that I've been wanting to write for a long time maybe in south of France or actually I wouldn't it would be probably Spain because my partner would kill me if it was south of France yes she would <laughs> uh, yes 
Uh, so it will be in Spain and somewhere that the weather is good and to just kind of like, you know, focus on writing and reading. Um, that would probably what I would do. So if it was a lottery, if it was grant, I would probably do something <laughs> that would be giving back. <laughs> well, I mean, the question is really about most artists don't have all the money that they need to do things. And that's one of the things we're always doing is seeking money to do creative projects so that we can employ people to do those creative projects. So it's sort of like, okay, if we just wrote you a check, what would you do? So I think writing yeah. your memoirs is a good choice or yes. whatever else. <laughs> yes, I mean, if you, you know, didn't I have to do a grant best. report, you could do anything you wanted. <laughs> I, you know, I have told you this, I think many, many years ago, it has always been my dream to do a, a version of The Little Prince, which is my favorite book of all time. Um, so, you know, and I like many years ago, I had like the idea of like doing The Little Prince with like a 3D kind of projection on an ice skating ring. Uh, like, and so I think if it was that unlimited money, um, that's probably would be I would just feel feel that and then I can well let's hope you get that money I think that would be a really interesting project to see Thank you. in the best sense of that word interesting <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap this up now but thanks so much Faye this has been great talking to you hope to see you in person in the near future but uh anyway uh thanks for being part of Dramatic Pause Thank you so much. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver, and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca, and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies. Thank you.